oftentimes I'll share my story with people and people are like, holy fuck, because, you know, I failed every subject from year one to year 12, you know, diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia at the age of seven, you know, six near death experiences. My CV literally sounds like the report card for one of the greatest failures of all times. But by virtue of what I've done, I've created something incredibly successful. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Mind Valley is bringing you the most advanced education in the world. If you are a member of Mind Valley, know that you're going to get access to all of this for less than $2 a day. See, most schools like Harvard charge thousands of dollars for a college education, and we think this is rubbish. We know that in five years from now, you will be better equipped when you get to study from the likes of the incredible teachers that we bring on the Mind Valley platform with the curriculum design, the amazing storytelling, and the technology that really enables you to truly transform. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman to learn more on how to become a member of Mind Valley. Hey everybody, this is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. We're going to have another fantastic guest having some amazing conversations with us with a focus on high performance in the workplace. Now, before I bring on to the guest, remember, if you're always loving these episodes, joining us twice a week and really wanting to have all of the things you do to become a superhuman be brought to you by the world leading experts, make sure you subscribe. And if you enjoy this episode, leave a review at the end so you can encourage other people to come in, tune in and really learn the incredible thoughts that we're going to be talking about today. Now, the guest I have today, Kerwin Ray, is a business strategist and high performance specialist. He's a businessman, an entrepreneur, investor and an international speaker. Get this, he's been featured on mainstream media outlets such as the Australian Sydney Morning Herald, the Financial Review, and Think Big Magazine. He's shared the stage with other people you might have heard of, such as Tony Robbins, Sir Richard Branson, Dan Starr, and business legend Lord Alan Sugar. And he's also the host of the Unstoppable Podcast. A funny story we're going to go into probably about the naming of the podcast, how we have a lot of things in common, but he's here to talk to you about how to step into this high performance mindset. What is the history that brought him to be the one helping hundreds of thousands of businesses in 154 industries? He's going to be able to help you too. So let's give a big warm welcome. Kerwin, welcome to Superhumans at Work. Jason, great to be here, mate. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. We were just talking before you jumped in. Now you host the Unstoppable Podcast. I know you're also someone that believes everybody can be a superhuman. And so let's jump into how you got started into being this person that's really all about high performance. How did this all start for you? Look, I think it started with the cartoon He-Man. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you're old enough to remember. <laughs> well, I've seen the memes. <laughs> I've seen, as a little kid, I used to love, you know, Spider-Man, He-Man, Batman, Superman, you know, like any other probably young boy, I used to really kind of lose myself in those characters. But because I was such a daydream, and it's interesting because I see that in my son now, I used to literally just have these imaginary scenarios that would run in my head for sometimes hours at a time where I was, you know, either rescuing babies or putting out fires or fighting off bad guys. And then as I kind of grew up, you know, I got obviously interested in martial arts. I got interested in, in sports, competitive sports. And then as a natural consequence, I just became more interested in how to do better because I wasn't very good at very many things. You know, I failed every single subject from year one to year 12. And so I had a very strong academic record of not being very good. But it wasn't until I started doing sports that I realized that my academics, my academic limitations didn't really apply there. 
And so when I started to apply myself in different areas of sport, I started to realize that I perhaps had more potential than what the academic side was showing. And then I just learned to play with that. And yeah, it's been something that has been a lifelong obsession. As I was saying to you, I'm 46 years of age, but for at least the last, I would say close to 30 years now, I have been obsessed with just how to be better, do better. For a long period of time, it was around the physical. And then once I realized that my academic limitations were merely just, I guess you could say something that was wide within my psychology that could change, then it became across the board, you know, high performance, not just in the area of sport, but also just in the area of performance as well, like performance in any area of life, whether that be sport or parenting. And also looking at learning. I'm someone who's very much obsessed with the process of learning. I'm very obsessed with the process of optimal performance, whether it be from a physical perspective, a cardiological perspective, a neurological perspective, a psychological perspective. You know, I've literally spent the last you know, a couple of decades going through every single system of my body, initially unconsciously, and just trying to work out how to feel better or how to feel normal is probably a better description. And then over time, more so probably the last, you know, decade and a half, very consciously, very deliberately and almost surgically. Because I think when you get into performance, and for myself, this was very much the case, you know, when you first get into and you start learning and obsessing about performance, you get a lot of five and 10 percenters pretty quickly. But once you obsess over performance for long enough, you get to the point where you don't, you no longer get five and 10 percenters. And those are the big things that create huge impacts in performance. Once you're, you know, obsessed with performance for a decade or more, you start having to fall into the category of these one percenters and two percenters. And that's the journey of performance is, you know, in your first, for me, I know in my first decade, decade and a half, I got some really big insights. And now it's just really finding out what are the really small things that if they're done, create incremental increases in performance. Mm, I love it. And it kind of makes me want to go back into one of the fundamental questions when you speak about this, because I think we're cut from the same cloth. I'm always about optimizing. I call it always optimization. People ask me like, why do you always optimize? I'm like, well, quite frankly, it's because I'm lazy. I just hate inefficiency. <laughs> yeah. And if I can make things more automated, more yeah, efficient, same. I feel like this is the way it should operate. But you have a lot of employees under your belt. You know, you've been running businesses and you teach these people, you know, around high performance. But you know, what is the big why that you tell for people that might not be thinking this way that, you know, optimizing for high performance is even important? Like what change does it make in your life if you really focus on doing these optimizations? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's probably the, the root of all questions around why people do anything, you know, at the end of the day, you know, why do people grow a business or why do people get into business? You know, why do people focus on their health? Why do people get into relationships? I've seen a direct correlation between the more I know myself, the better I've got to know myself, my systems within the body, my uniqueness, the better I've been able to regulate those systems. But when those systems are in regulation, when they're regulated, I'm far happier. I seem to have a far better quality of life. I have a far greater perception of life. I have far greater levels of sleep, far greater levels of intimacy, far greater levels of depth of connection. And so for me, I think ultimately the reason that people do anything is because they want something. And I think sometimes when they want something, they may think that they want something and that something might be the thing that will give them what they really want, you know, because a lot of people get into business because they want to have more money. They want to make more money. And that's a terrible reason to start a business. But I know for me personally, the reason I do what I do is because it makes me feel better. You know, it makes me happier. And the happier I am, then the more able I am to do things at a higher level in any area of my life, whether it be as a parent or as an entrepreneur, you know, or as a, as a speaker or whatever I'm choosing to apply my attention to at that time. Mm, I love that. And you know, I, I think of the times that I've always went towards one direction, hoping it was making me happy. I mean, I was being interviewed the other day and they were saying like, okay, what was the reason like you started the business the first time? And yeah, it was that I wanted to go make money and 
that was the initial drive, but I quickly hit some roadblocks. I had some lessons, painful lessons to go through, maybe a bit of depression in the process when I found myself that everything I had learned was a little wrong. And then I made a course correction, right? And it was only through that kind of chasing what I knew wasn't right, made me start doing some things that were better. And in your case, I thought it was very interesting in your bio that I see you've had six near-death experiences. And I wanted to talk a bit about that because you know how they say a lot of the times you find out what's important when you realize how precious time is. And I feel like for myself, you know, even growing a business or being an entrepreneur, going down the path of chasing the money and realizing it was not right, put me on a path that was doing the better things. And so I'd be curious to know, where do you see these experiences being shaping the fact that you are obsessed about performance? You do seem to have a lot of care about these efficiency and making an impact. And what can people learn from the things that you went through? Yeah, look, Napoleon Hill talks about births, deaths, and marriages, you know, the three fundamental things that can have an enormous shift on the trajectory in people's lives, you know, the birth of a child and all of a sudden, you know, your perspective on value and time changes, meeting someone. And then again, all of a sudden your perspective on time changes and, you know, the biggest one is death, mortality. You know, there's something really empowering about mortality when you really acknowledge it. Like, I mean, really empowering. And for me, I feel quite blessed. You know, people would say, oh man, six times. And it's actually, I've stopped counting. Like it's probably actually a couple more and that's fine. But for me, one of the things I've discovered with my mortality is every time, for me, I think I had those, let's call it those six near-death experiences to really consider mortality. Now I consider mortality every day, you know, whereas prior to those six experiences, I probably didn't really think about my mortality a lot. You know, the first experience that I had at the age of 15, I fell over in a broken bottle, cut all my nerves, tendons, main artery, nearly bled to death, two blood transfusions, 13 and a half hours of microsurgery. I was told I was going to be physically disabled. My arm would never get back to what it was. I'd be lucky to get 25% use of my hand back. And that to me is one area where this kind of started because, you know, I was told I would you know, essentially be disabled. Don't worry, kid, you'll be eligible for disability. And for me, that had a pretty profound impact. And so, you know, I had to learn how to essentially optimize the environment, optimize myself in order to, to be able to push through. But, you know, I have had a stroke. I've had pulmonary embolisms. I've nearly drowned. I've, you know, there's also some ex more exciting ones where, I, you know, I was shot out of the door of a nightclub, had a gun put in my mouth in a high stakes situation when I was doing some security work. And every single one of those situations gave me the opportunity to reflect on my mortality, but I was at a different stage of life. You know, when I had that first accident at 15, I didn't really consider the fact that I nearly died. I just thought that I'm going to have a, a claw of a right hand and I'm not going to be able to play football and the girls are going to think I'm a freak. Like that was my biggest concern at 15, you know, when I nearly died. But with every experience and taste of mortality, it gives you a real appreciation for time. You know, and when I say time, like I don't think most people really have a value on time. It's not until you nearly exit the planet a few times you don't really value time until, as an example, you sit on a, a pin, you sit on a pin, you sit on something hot, all of a sudden you get a real a strong appreciation for every three or four seconds because you realize for every three or four seconds, that's an immense amount of pain. And so for me, you know, those near-death experiences have really made me optimize the value of time. And when you optimize the value, when you understand the value of time, you optimize time and you start prioritizing your life in very different ways. You know, I know for me, I, every morning when I wake up and I take my son to school, I realize I not consciously acknowledge one of us may not come home. Okay. And I do the same things most evenings as well. One of us may not wake up. Now that might sound a little bit morbid, but that works for me because it helps me really focus on being present when I am with him in the time that I've got him in the morning, you know, cause we've only got two and a half hours together in the morning and I want to optimize that time. I want to maximize that time. Same in the evenings, you know, with dinners and bedtimes and book readings and everything else. And I think sometimes, you know, unless you've had the 
situation where that time, your future time has potentially been taken away, you really don't understand the value of time until, you know, you've been put on a clock. And for me, yeah, I'm super grateful. And I, I say that I'm a little bit of a slow learner. You know, it took me six or seven goes before I really understood the value of mortality. Now I'm like, I say to, the, to my guides and my angels, okay, I get it now. I understand. And I'm very grateful and I wouldn't change anything. And, you know, whether I'm here for another 50 years or another, you know, five minutes, I'm very conscious of the fact that it's precious and I'll use it every single second I've got to the best of my ability. I love it. I mean, that really puts things in perspective, you know, and it really does. I mean, the closest I've had is, I mean, I had a snowboarding accident when I broke my pelvis. I thought I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, but I, it kind of made me be more kind, a little more humble every time I had an accident or something that, well, actually now I think back, I hit my head a few times dirt biking. And so I've had a lot of times that I've had accidents that kind of made me have a major limitations, but being able to get out of that and overcome that limitation. That's a good perspective, Jason. Like how many times have you had an accident where it's prevented you from doing something you can normally do? You know, when I lost my hand, I lost my hand for like a year. Like you can't even really tell now. You know, but I've had situations before I've blown my knee out and you lose the ability to walk for six weeks, sometimes, you know, a couple of months. And I think that contrast in life is good because if you can't appreciate love, you know, without experiencing some level of, you know, anger, you can't appreciate peace if you haven't experienced some level of conflict. But it's, I think it's learning how to find those, those zones in healthy ways, but having the psychology that enables you to balance out the perspective when they happen so that it doesn't end up being, and you know, this is a great segue, you know, oftentimes I'll share my story with people. And people are like, holy fuck, because, you know, I failed every subject from year one to year 12, you know, diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia at the age of seven, you know, six near-death experiences. My CV literally sounds like the report card for one of the greatest failures of all times. But by virtue of what I've done, I've created something incredibly successful. And I think, you know, a lot of people kind of miss the point and they think there's got to be a certain stature. You've got to be at a certain place in order to be able to achieve certain things. And it's just, it's just not necessarily the case. And I think once we understand that our psychology is the one that drives the meaning of our stories, because, you know, I've met people who have got, you know, stories like mine, worse than mine, less than mine, but their stories are disempowering. The way they frame their stories in their mind is, you know, disempowering. It creates levels of weakness. It creates vulnerability. It's framed in victimhood. Whereas for me, I've looked at every single situation that's happened to me. I've claimed total and utter extreme levels of ownership and responsibility. And I'm aware that every single one of these things is by virtue in my life, by design there to hone, sharpen, blunt, and give me something that I don't currently have today that I'll need tomorrow. And that to me has been probably one of the biggest driving forces, you know, in all of these near-death experiences bar the, the hand, because I still remember when the stroke came on and I had a full-blown NDE near-death experience. And from the moment the stroke came on, I knew the moment it came on, I could either fight this or I can just fucking ride it. And I rode that thing. And it was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life. You know, same with, you know, being hospitalized with a pulmonary embolism. doesn't sound fun, doesn't sound exciting, incredibly painful. However, pain, as I've learned, is incredibly transcendental. And when you can surrender to pain, it's like an ice bath, you know, an ice bath or sun gazing or, you know, walking on hot coals, whatever your methodology is, when you can surrender to pain and you can go through the pain to the other side and realize, wow, that actually is just a response. And when you just tune into what pain is, it's nothing more than a sensation. And when you surrender to the pain you allow it into your body, wow, it's actually not doing anything bad to me. If anything, I actually feel more connected. And that might sound a little sick, but, you know, it's, it's been incredibly helpful for me. 
this kind of brings me back to putting this together where, you know, we talked about how you've always had this obsession about, you know, high performance optimization. You started doing these big optimizations in your life. And now you're still at the point where you're still doing tweak optimizations because you have this massive appreciation for time. Obviously you went through these near death experiences and this gave you that perspective to understand that time is valuable. You can optimize and that allows you to have more time with your family, allows you to make a business that makes bigger impact, which kind of brings me to that tool that we could give for people. Now, obviously I don't think we're encouraging people to go and do a near death experiences, but you've already shared one tool that I think is really cool, which is thinking on that mortality. Are there other things that you would suggest that people can do so that we have a better appreciation and that gets us motivated to do the things that, you know, might not give us that instant gratification, but over time gives us those optimizations that really make you have an incredible life in the long term. You nailed a really good question there. Like, what's one thing that we can do to become more motivated? Because when it comes to tools, like I can hand out tools all day long. And when you look at the fundamentals of performance, they are governed by a few factors, you know, and the biggest factors I see that govern performance in most cases are fears around something and which is related to psychology, but we're only really governed by two fears fundamentally at a primal level. And that's the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Every single other fear that we have associated with whatever mental block that we have that's preventing us, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of, you know, looking bad, whatever it is, they've all been learned through concepts. And so for me, you know, fundamentally, the first thing that I did is I blew up both of those fears. You know, I did 200 skydives in 12 months. I used to strap a heart rate monitor on myself in free fall, meditate in free fall and have, you know, dozens of experiences of sub 80 beats per minute in a free fall environment, 200,000 Ks, so 220 Ks plus, right? Then I went and pursued the sound side because, you know, loud noises, train with the special forces. So not everyone has to go. And, and, and again, I did enormous amounts of weapons training with the SEALs in the US and Ukrainian special forces. And I didn't do it because I just wanted to go and play with guns, although that was a fun part of it. I did it because I wanted to learn how to maintain coherence and systematic process in a situation where you're activated. Because if you're falling through the sky, it's very hard to stay conscious. If you're sitting in a room with three other guys and there are literally explosives going off and you know rapid gunfire going off, by virtue of your primal responses, it's very hard to stay coherent. It's almost impossible. And so it's a conditioning process. The reason I jumped 200 times is because I conditioned myself to get to a point where I wasn't afraid of falling through the sky anymore. The reason I trained with the special forces is I wanted to condition myself to the loud noises to the point where it would no longer affect me, but I could still maintain coherence to work through, you know, 73 different actions to w- move through a kill house to deploy a, an objective within a mission and not shoot anyone or get shot myself, right? And so those, to me, they're fundamentals. But when you look at above that, okay, and again, you asked the big question around motivation, like what's the motivation to do things? And this is where most people go wrong with motivation. They think motivation is an extrinsic factor. You know, what is it that motivates someone to fucking go and jump out of plane 200 times? What is it that motivates someone to go and, you know, play with guns? What is it that motivates someone to go and do some of the stupid shit that people would perceive that I've done? But for me, it's been very therapeutic. And motivation, it's not a book, it's not a seminar, and it's not even a podcast. And I mean, no disrespect to anyone who's listening. It's an internal framework of understanding self. You know, and for me, motivation is based on a really simple concept of the more you know who you are, the easier you are to motivate. Just like with my team, you know, because people say to me, oh, how do you motivate your team? I say, well, I get to know them. Because if I try and use the same tools to motivate me, to motivate them, their values are different to mine. And that's when we look at motivation. And I'm kind of jumping on this little point here around tools, and I'll hand out the tools in a second. The first tool that we need to really 
develop is the tool of self and understanding who we are. You know, what are my values? Legitimate values, not, not what are my social values that I tell people are important to me, but they don't actually have any visible presence in my life. What are the legitimate values based on where I spend time, energy, obsession? Because when I know what my real values are, then I know what my buttons are. And when I know what my buttons are, then it's really easy for me to know what to think about in order to get myself going. You know, people who aren't motivated, they just don't know who they are. They haven't met themselves properly. And if they are extrinsically anchored to a book, a podcast, a type of seminar, a type of speaker, a type of video, you're fucked for good. And I'm sorry if I can't say that word. No, we're going to put an explicit note on this one and I love it. So keep going. (laughs) (laughs) If you literally place an extrinsic anchor on any aspect of motivation in your life, you are so beyond fucked. It's just ridiculous because that is literally essentially saying that I can only allow myself to choose to be motivated when all these factors extrinsic to me, external to me, are in a line. And that's never going to be the way. You know, for me, the more you know who you are, the more I know about my value system, all I need to know is, okay, I need to do this. I'm not motivated to do this. Okay, what am I motivated to do? And how will me doing this enable me to have more of what I really want? And so for me, I can motivate myself to do anything I don't want to do because all I have to do is look at what is genuinely important to me and then just asking questions. How will doing this enable me to have more of that? I only need to ask three, four, five, six, seven, eight questions before I go, okay, I can now see how those two values are connected. I can now see the value of this outcome is connected to something I genuinely want to do. Okay, now I'll actually want to do it. And it seems so simple as a tool. You know, I call it the Fortune 500 list where you look at what you want to do and you're like, what what do you want to do that you're not motivated to do? Okay, well, I need to do this outcome. I'm not motivated to do it. What are you motivated to do? Well, what is a genuine value? And people might say, well, obviously, hanging a piece of fruit is family. You know, family is a value of mine. It's, It's evident by the fact the amount of time I spend, intention, presence. Okay, well, how, if you write down 500 benefits of you doing this to your family, you won't even have to get to 500. You'll get to maybe 25, maybe 80. And you'll literally create, and this is what we've got to understand. Motivation is a neurological network in the brain. It's a set of neurons that all hang out and are wired together. And every time a little impulse is fired down that channel, it trickles this little net of neurons. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Autonomous behavior is birth. Okay. And people go, oh, why did you do that? Well, it just happened. And autonomous behavior in most cases is conditioned. And so for me, you know, if you start asking the 500 benefits to your family for you doing this outcome, you'll get to like 20, 30, maybe 40. But now what have you created? You've got a new set of neurons that are now connected to an outcome that have never been connected before. And you keep firing charge down those neurons, what's ultimately going to happen? Ultimately, it will translate into a behavior because what is a behavior? A behavior is nothing more than an activation of a neural network. And a neural network is nothing more than neurons that have been connected together through experience consciously or unconsciously. For me, I'm in the process of optimization. And so I have to say to people, well, you can hope to get lucky and be unconsciously associated to do the things that you need to do to be highly motivated. Or if you're like me, maybe like you, I grew up being very fucking unmotivated and lazy. You have to work at the shit. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't born motivated. I had to work at this shit. And so for me, the reason that I can autonomously behave to do the things that as a natural consequence produce the results that I'm looking for is because I've asked enough questions you know, deliberately, you know, consciously to create the connections so that I don't have to sit there and go, oh, I have to do this. Oh, why do I have to do this? Oh, I really don't want to do it. That's just not even a conversation anymore. And don't get me wrong. There are still things that I sometimes don't want to do, but I can just now get myself to the point of getting things done far quicker than just trying to sit there and work it out. And I would also think in the process of doing that, you also probably find out what are the tasks that are actually important to do. And there's probably a lot of things that you realize that, hey, this doesn't even align to the values. I don't even feel like it's going to move the needle in the things that I truly find this important. 
Well, that's a whole nother conversation that goes back to strategic and being strategically prioritizing your life, you know? And so for me, you know, what's one of the secret sources that we have in our business with our clients is we are very big on strategic planning, you know, setting five to 10 year objectives, breaking those down, you know, over a 12 month period, prioritizing those priorities over a three month period, and then literally taking those priorities that are going to be accomplished in the next three months and then breaking them down every week into goals and every day into tasks, you know, and that for me ensures that whenever we're doing things, whenever something shows up on your list. And again, it's an optimization tool. I've taken it from military, you know, special forces, air force, you know, how do you optimize your time? Well, you got to have a plan, you know, cause no one ever fucking went into a war zone. No one ever did something great without having some level of coordination, you know? And so for me, yes, I know how to reassociate my values to get the things done, but nothing ever falls into my plate unless it's a strategic priority in the first place. But that's a bigger conversation. I'm bringing it up because I found it really funny. And being someone that's so obsessed with optimization, I know how to motivate myself to do a lot of things. And this tool you just shared, I think is another one I'm putting in my toolbox right now because I think that's really powerful. But I think it was maybe like eight, nine years ago, I wrote a blog post about how I don't set goals because I found myself being able to be so high performance and optimized at getting tasks done that I never felt like it was a constraint. Yet I found myself just coasting or floating in a river, not swimming down with any kind of aggression or destination. And it was only through, you know, being slapped around a little, realizing that, my God, that is the missing piece. Because then if nothing is a goal, then everything's important, then nothing is a priority, and then you're just wasting a lot of time. And now I had that momentum. Let me guess, that was a spiritual awakening phase of your life, wasn't it? It was when yeah. you're going through a very spiritual... Yeah, me too. I went through that phase maybe 12 years ago. Well, I'm not planning. I'm not having goals. <laughs> I'm just going to fucking cruise, man. And whatever comes into my ether will be exactly what... And I did that. I had a level of success with that, but then I realized, okay, that's a level of optimization, but there are levels above that. If you want to be even better, depends how you want to play the game, but that's a strategy. Yeah. I tried that for a while as well. So for everybody who's listening to this and you find yourself being in that space, know that it's okay. It's part of your growth stages. And eventually you'll be taking the lessons that you're hearing today. And you realize that whatever speed you think you're going, you can go so much faster and do much better things and have more freedom and time to do the things that are important to you. Kerwin, this is all fantastic. I love everything we're talking about. And you've obviously been doing this with a lot of businesses and a lot of people. Are you seeing some, you know, typical pain points that you need to work with people when it comes to having a high performance mindset that could be quick to identify when people are listening to this so they can start getting into this kind of habit? The biggest one, and I'll start there, and that's where we, we don't really need to go any further, but we can, is relationship with self the more you know yourself, the easier it is for you to perform. It's like a coach, you know, the reason that great coaches can do the jobs that they do at the level that they can is because they know, they know the player, you know, they know that person, they know that character, that sports person, their values, their, their psychology to such a degree that they know what to do, what to say, how to frame things, what questions to ask in order to get the results that other people can't. You know, and people say, you know, how do you get the, how are you able to do the things that you do? And so I just spend a lot of time, a disproportionate amount of time getting to know who I am, which relates to obviously the values piece, you know, but it's not just the values piece. It's also the piece that lies within that. Where does a value come from? You know, how do we create a value in the first place? And so for me, it's understanding that a psychology has four layers to it. Okay. And each layer builds upon the layer before. And the first layer of our psychology that is foundational in all forms of our psychological frameworks is what are the stories that we've adopted from our environment, the stories that we've been told and the stories that we have taken on that we continually run through our head. You know, and those stories, when you take them on and you observe them, you hear them being spoken about, biggest ones around money. We grow up in an environment where, you know, people with money, they're even bastardized on cartoons. And how many hours of cartoons do people spend 
watching as kids, you know, and then we hear our parents fighting about money. And then we hear, you know, we see the newspapers, you know, talking about people with money. And then we hear our friends at school bagging out people with money. And so we create these stories that money is actually quite bad. And if you tell someone a story for long enough, you know, because that's the first step of a psychology is story, story time, because that's how we transfer knowledge. That's how we've transferred knowledge for thousands of years is through storytelling on cave walls. Okay. And then around campfires and now around dinner tables. But if you tell someone a story for long enough, it fundamentally, the brain being the cognitive mind that it is, it needs to create a shortcut. And the way that it creates a shortcut is rather than you seeing something and then you having to tell yourself the story of all the memories that make that meaning real, we create these shortcuts called beliefs. And beliefs are our way of not having to think about things. We just see something and we go, that's what it means. But those beliefs come from the stories. And when those stories have enough momentum, they create the shortcut, which is the belief system. And all a belief does is filter. A story is a piece of code. We are a biological computer. Okay, that has been proven. We've known that forever. All computing science for the last 60 years, 80 years has been trying to replicate the human brain in hardware. Okay, but we are a biological supercomputer. We can be programmed. We can be deprogrammed. Okay, we have viruses. And what's a virus? A virus is just a bad piece of code. What's a bad piece of code? Oh, I'm no fucking good at this. I'm terrible at this. Oh, I suck at this. That's just a virus. Okay, and what does that cause? Memory loss, crashes, you know, the same symptoms that you would get in a computer, we create, you know, in the hardware of our brains. And our beliefs have a huge impact on that because our beliefs fundamentally become our filtering system. And the brain being the cognitive mind that it is, it's constantly filtering information and only serving us the information that we have programmed the hardware to deem as actually important. Okay, and so that's what the belief systems do is they filter, and you're probably aware of what a scotoma is. You know, a scotoma is a psychologically induced blind spot. A scotoma is when you got your glasses on your head and you're like, has anyone seen my sunglasses? Has anyone seen my sunglasses? I don't know where the fuck my sunglasses are. Damn it, has anyone seen my sunglasses? I know they're here somewhere. Or you open the cupboard, you're like, where's the salt? The salt, I can't see the salt. And then your partner comes in, it goes in front of you. No, it's not. And they go, what's this? You're like, fuck, I swear to God, that wasn't there a second ago. But that's how <laughs> most people live their life. They live their life because they've told themselves a story that there's no money around. They've told themselves a story that they're not lovable. They've told themselves a story that things are hard. And as a result, they create these belief systems where the brain by virtue just does what it's told, filters information to show you what you've asked it to. Show me that there's no money. Show me that I'm not lovable. Show me these things. And the brain is incredibly predictable and it is incredibly efficient at doing what it's told. Unfortunately, most people just unconsciously get the brain to do what it's told. But your story is the code. That coding creates the foundation for belief systems. Those belief systems become your shortcuts to filter information quickly so that you can make decisions fast without having to think about it too much. But that fundamentally then merges below and creates what we call the value system. And the value system is what we call the motive system. The motive, the reason to do. Okay, because you've got a story that'll produce a belief, but the beliefs over time will produce a value and those values stack motives. Reason to do something, reason not to do something. Well, I would make money, but I have all these unconscious stories in my head that my mum and my dad told me that I saw in cartoons that money's really bad. And so I don't understand, Jason, but I'm just not motivated to make money. But if I consciously think about it and start recognizing and listening to the words and the stories that go in my head, I can start hearing myself going, shit, I actually have some really bad stories and I'm running up here. I'd go as far as to say that's a virus. Wow, no wonder I can't see money because I believe there's no money around, you know, and no wonder I'm not motivated to pursue it because, you know, it's not even in the hierarchy. It's not even in the top five, let alone in most cases, the top 10. And so for me, you know, the more I understand about my psychological framework and then the third, the fourth layer of your psychology is your identity. Because if you take your stories, your beliefs and your values, you wrap that all together, you have, who am, who am I? This is who I am. I am nothing more than an expression of my stories, my beliefs and my values. But most people are in stage four of their identity 
based on three stages of unconscious development, three stages of being told what to think. You know, and as a result, three stages of being conditioned how to believe, three stages of you know, being conditioned of what's important to you. And most people are a product of the system, not a product of humanity. You know, and when we start looking at goals and the motives of humanity, you know, and we focus on the development of stories around that and the development of beliefs around that and the development of motives around that, then you have very different operating systems. And that's what, what that psychology is. It's an operating system that when you program it will fundamentally determine the behavior of the hardware. You know, people act like, oh, I don't know why I do the things that I do. Well, then wake the fuck up, start listening to the conversations going on in your head, start accepting responsibility for the behaviors and realizing that it's sitting somewhere in a thought closet that was created somewhere that you don't need to necessarily clean out, but you need to acknowledge, okay, and replace. And that's one of the first things we do when we work with clients is we get them to change the story. Listen, turn the lights on. Okay, whoa, hang on. I didn't realize I was saying this. Clean up on aisle four. But then secondly, okay, let's consciously choose surgically the suggestions. And if I was to say these things to myself, you know, consistently every single day, what would happen if it's as a natural consequence, this stuck? And I do this, Jason, you love this. I do this as an example at one of my events where I basically, I give everyone in the room and there's about 800 people in the room. I give them a suggestion 34 times. Okay. And I won't tell you what the suggestion is. And the next day, it's about 80% of that room literally behave unconsciously to that suggestion. Just through 34 times me suggesting you are going to do this at this time. I even go as far as to say, you will do this at this time, 34 times. And then 80% of the room the next day come in and go, holy shit, I did that at that time. And I go, yeah. And all I did was suggest it to you 34 times. How many times are you saying to yourself every single day, I suck when it comes to making money? I suck at relationships, you know, or I am phenomenal at relationships. I am a master relationship builder. I have a photographic memory. Everything I see here, smell, taste, and touch. I recall with crystal clear accuracy. You know, I'm a power for good. I am a motivational master. I am a sales machine. And these are all the things that if you keep layering, keep layering, keep layering, what happens? A belief pops out. Okay. Don't have to do anything other than fucking, how do you brainwash anyone? <laughs> you just keep telling them the same thing. Okay. It's not fucking rocket science. Be like, oh, I need to read a book. No, you don't. <laughs> you need to read some words on a fucking piece of paper that were consciously chosen. That if they stuck in your psychology, it would produce a behavior that you want in your life right now. Simple as that. I call it the commandments, right? Where you surgically sit down and go, right, what are the things that I want in my life? Okay. I want that. And if I want that, what is the statement that if I tell myself that enough and I believe it, that will happen as a natural consequence. Right. Create that statement. Tell yourself that statement 50 times a day. Incredible. And it's so funny because I actually went through a process this weekend where I actually got hypnotized. An hypnotist came up and he made me have these suggestions, brought up all these ideas and my compliance to those behaviors, not like I thought being hypnotized was that you're not conscious. No, it's really because you have these kind of statements that are told to you and you have this natural way that you want to actually obey to those commands. And then I thought about what you just said. And it's like, yeah, well, I think a lot of us are walking around hypnotized with all those statements and things that run through our head as stories. And this is just a powerful framework and a really, really important wake up call for everybody listening. This was really fun, Kerwin. Thank you so much for sharing that framework because I think that is going to be the key. Absolute pleasure. Now, for people listening, I want to wrap this up because we had an amazing journey here with Kerwin Way. We talked about a lot of important things you want to bring into your life so that you can become a superhuman. We've started with understanding that when you build these habits of high performance, right, you're going to have this obsession about it that really brings you into a place where you have more freedom, more time, and get to do the things that really make an impact, that really light you up, and that are really important to you. Now, if you don't already have that, know that maybe it's because you haven't had that perception of how limited our time is. And so in the case of Kerwin, obviously had some near 
near-death experiences, but this reflection on mortality, I thought was a really, really important tool that you should focus on, not obsessing about the fact that we're all going to die, but really realizing that our time is limited. There's limited, finite things that we can do on this planet. And when we become more high-performance individuals, that means there's more things that we can do and have to appreciate the time that we have here. Now, moving forward with that, we really wanted to focus on what are the things that really guide our behaviors, these stories, these beliefs, these values, these identities, knowing yourself is the number one thing that we really wanted you to understand by listening to this podcast. It's not about going to seminars and having someone jump on stage, have everybody clapping and getting you motivated. It's about what are the things that you have within yourself that make you aligned to who you are and being able to do these things in a high performance way. The framework that was shared is so powerful where we start from the stories we tell ourselves are going to dictate the behaviors are going to give you the values and give you your identity. Question those, wake up, ask questions and use powerful affirmation statements or commands as Kerwin shares that bring you closer to the things you want to have in life. Analyze the things that go against that. And why do you have these things being done in your brain? Usually happens with the stories you have. And this whole concept of motivation has been turned on its head with a really powerful tool, which is you don't need to be externally motivated. Look at what the outcome of whatever it is that you're trying to do has to do with the impact you want to see on the things that are important for you, which are based on the values. So have a clarity of yourself so you can go, yeah, I want to get up in the morning and go to the gym. Why is that? If having more time being healthy with your kids, your grandkids is something important to you, then already these are things that you can put down on the list, making this Fortune 500 list, but you won't have to get to 500. Once you start stacking all these positive reasons why you want to do any action, it's not going to be a question of motivation. It's going to be a question of who you are. And who you are is going to be someone who's a superhuman, which I know you already are since you're listening to this podcast. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things that you're always doing to optimize yourself. All the tools here have been extremely powerful. If you haven't already subscribed, Current Way has the podcast, the Unstoppable Podcast. You're going to want to go there and see who the people that he interviews that talk about business strategy, as well as more high performance habits. And we're going to make sure that there's some links to more of Kerwin Ray's material programs so you can learn more with him. He's been an incredible guest on the show. Kerwin, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to have you. Jason, absolute pleasure. I know you're going to wrap this up. Can I share one quick story with you? Go for it. <laughs> The suntan effect. You're probably familiar with it. It relates to the, everything we've talked about here with motivation. I'll keep this nice and quick out of respect for everybody's time. One of my team members has been working for me for four years. She's been trying to motivate herself to lose weight for the last 20 years. And in a town hall meeting, she said to me, Kerwin, I've been trying to motivate myself to lose weight for the last 20 years and I will maybe lose four, five, six kilos and then I'll put it back on. I'll get excited for a little while. I'll read a book. I'll get excited. And I go, well, that's the suntan effect. You go on an event, you read a book, you hear from someone, you get excited. Okay. All of a sudden you've now got a suntan. Two weeks later, you know, you're going to be back to your pasty self. And I said to her, Tracy, what are the things that are legitimately important to you? And she said, family. And I asked her the question, how will you losing weight enable you to spend more time with your family? How will you losing weight enable you to have better quality time? We came up with 50 reasons, okay, in front of the whole team. That was eight months ago. She's lost 25 kilos and she's kept the whole thing off. So I'll let that sit. It's not about the suntan effect. It's about going inside. It's the intrinsic effect. I love it. Maybe I think I was blessed with the fact that I've actually never been able to tan because I'm so pasty white, I'll burn instantly. So I've always went <laughs> yeah. for the things that cause a bit more permanence. <laughs> but I had not heard of it labeled that way. And I think you're so right because, you know, we always have that kind of, you know, dopamine rush out of an external yeah. event that gives us that short-term motivation. But when you really go down to knowing yourself with the techniques you shared, I think that's really what drives the big transformation. How do so, we make it a way of life? Because anyone can go to an event and be motivated, but we, in most cases, two weeks later, they're going to be back to themselves again. Mm -hmm. How do we mm -hmm. make it a way of life? Powerful stuff. Corwin Way, thanks again for coming here and sharing. This was powerful. Everybody, thank you also for tuning in and until next time. 
Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. 